We're starting a new series today that we're calling, as you just saw, The Dark Side. And what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks is we're going to be exploring this idea of anger. How do we practically process this very real emotion that we oftentimes experience? And here's how we're going to unpack this topic over the next three weeks. We're going to be thinking about how do I deal with anger that maybe I have that's directed towards God? How do I deal with anger that I have in my life that might be directed towards other people? And lastly, we're going to look at how do I deal with anger in my life that might be directed toward myself? And that's what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks. The great philosopher and theologian Forrest Gump once said this. You probably remember this. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And I tried to, I tried to Forrest Gump voice all day long and it just didn't work out. But here's what's true about that is that you don't know what's coming in life. You never know what's around the corner. You never know what life is going to bring you. But here's what's, I think, a little bit false about what Forrest teaches us, is that oftentimes with a box of chocolates, even the ones that you don't prefer, that you don't like so much, they're just not that bad. I mean, after all, it's still chocolate, isn't it? Really? But life isn't like that, is it? There are challenges that come our way in life. There are things that produce great pain and suffering and sometimes even great emotion. Sometimes in life we just get a gut punch. About 15 years ago, my wife came to me and she said, you know, I'm just not hearing as well as I used to. And uh, that created a, a little bit of fear in us because of some genetic things in our family. We knew that it was a possibility that at about age 30 that she would start to go deaf. And so she went to uh, just a regular health screening, got some hearing tests, and, and our fears were confirmed. Even at, even at that point when she was just starting to notice it, she had lost about 75% of her hearing in one ear and about 25% in the other. But we knew the trajectory that we're on, that our life, unless God intervenes, is on a path toward deafness. And the way she loses her hearing, it's not by volume, it's not by how loud things are, but she loses tones. And so right now, she just loses all of her high tones. And what happens is just everything around her just sounds garbled. And you know, you just think there's, there's lots of challenging things in life, but this would seem especially challenging for us because we wanted our lives to be about being with people and being an influence in the lives of people. What I began to watch in the life of my wife was to just watch her close off inside because what would happen is that we would want to spend time with groups of people and she's amazing at reading lips, but when you're with large groups of people or there's background noise, she just can't follow the conversation. So we would have had a bunch of friends over in this great time. And when the night was over, I'm just looking at her and she's just so sad and in tears. She's saying, I have no idea what went on tonight. It just looked like everyone was having a great time. But I was completely disconnected from everything that was going on. I just watched her life, everything in her. She wanted to just shut down and go inside and not, not engage with the world around us. And even just simple things like going to Costco were challenging for her. She came home from Costco one day and she'd had this incident there where she was standing in line and there was a lady behind her that had just a, a couple of items in her hand. And my wife, like whenever we go to Costco, there's always a lot of stuff. But she had a lot of things in her cart. And this lady had asked her, could I go in front of you? I'm in a hurry, I just have a couple things. And my wife didn't hear her. 
And this lady was so angry and just went off yelling at my wife in the middle of Costco. She was so embarrassed. And you just think about the simple things of life, just going to Costco, that become emotionally challenging. But if we were to go around the room here tonight, every one of us has stories. Every one of us has those gut punches that we've received in life. Many of us have had friends that have died way too young and way too tragically. Many of us have had that call that we got from the doctor and the news just confirmed our worst fears. Many of you have stood up in front of people and before God and the one who said to you, I will always be faithful to you, wasn't faithful to you. Some of you have that desire to have a child in your life but are wrestling with infertility. You want a family, but it just doesn't seem like God's providing it. And maybe you get to that place where that child is finally conceived, but then the gut punch of a miscarriage takes you down. Some of you are in that place where your children are making life choices that are going away from the word and the will of God, and it's scaring you to death, and you're wondering, what is going on? Some of you are in that place where you have such a desire for a spouse in your life. You want to be married, but the circumstances aren't there for you, and you feel alone in your singleness. Some of you are in that place where there's the tension of finances in life, and this desire to want to have a job and unemployment, just, those things are just crushing right now. You want to work, but it's just not working out. If we had the time, we could bring up everyone in this room and we could all talk about those things in our life that have been challenging. And when we get to those places, we start to ask the question, God, what is going on? Where are you in all of this? Are you aware of the kind of suffering that's going on in my life? Why don't you do something? Do you not, do you not care about the things that are going on in my life? Are you too powerless to do something about it? All these kinds of questions and emotions go on inside of us. And sometimes that can manifest itself in anger toward God. We just start to wonder, God, what in the world is going on? But what I want to do tonight is I want to do the best job I can to try to bring some perspective to this very real emotion and some of these very real questions that we have. And I want us to take some time tonight and just look at a psalm. And I chose the Psalms intentionally because the Psalms deal with emotion. And anger, suffering, and pain are very real emotions. But the Psalms are great because they have a way of helping us see in to the hearts and the motives of people that write the Psalms in ways that other propositional truth in the scriptures just don't. We've got to ask ourselves, how do we deal with this kind of emotion in our life? Because if this was to represent emotion, some people would say that we idolize our emotion. We worship our emotion as almost an end in itself, that we worship emotion. Emotions are God-given, and they're great indicators of things that are going on inside of us, but they're not to be worshiped. And some people, oftentimes even religious people, would say what you need to do is that you need to stuff your emotion, especially the motion of anger. You know, we just need to put on our smiley face, and we need to just kind of sweep things under the rug. We need to just keep that under there where it belongs. That's where anger belongs, under the rug. But I think God has a very different perspective on what he wants us to do with 
the pain and suffering, and oftentimes the anger that comes from that. What we're going to do is we're going to unpack Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph, and here's how Psalm 73 starts. It starts with Asaph's thesis statement. It says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is what I think, is this is the grid that Asaph had as he looked at life. And that's why this is his thesis statement. And if I had to kind of reword what it is that I think that he's saying right there, it would be this. He believes with everything in him that God is good. God is a very good God, and he's absolutely right in that. But I think he would also say that, so if I am good, then good things and good things only will happen to me. Because God is good, if I do good things, then good things are going to happen to me. And friends, that is an absolute myth. And many people in the church absolutely believe that. They think if I've got God in my life, and I do everything I can to walk closely with him, if I'm a good little Christian, and do all the things that good little Christians do, then God won't let anything really bad happen to me. That is not reality, and it's not true. And there's a lot of people that make a lot of money teaching that to people, but friends, they are not reading all of the Bible. And here's the problem. If we have that as our thesis statement for life, here's what's gonna happen. When bad things happen, and bad things will happen, when they happen, we're gonna look at ourselves and say, what is wrong with me? Did I do something wrong? And here's the irony of this whole thing. Actually, life is more challenging. There is more pain and suffering in life because we are a follower of Christ than being a person that isn't a person of faith. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. In the Bible, when it talks about what does it mean for us to come into a relationship with God, what does conversion look like? There's some metaphors that the Bible uses, and I want us to focus in on one of those, and it comes from Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is Ezekiel prophesying about the new covenant, talking about that one day, this is what God's gonna do for his people. And this is what he said, and he gives us a great metaphor for what it looks like to be changed by the power of the gospel. Verse 25 starts with this. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. What God does for us when we come to faith in Christ is he actually does heart surgery in us. He takes away a hardened heart, and he actually gives us a heart of flesh. Now, there's a lot of things that this metaphor means, but it means at least this, that when we truly come to know Jesus, when he becomes our king, one of the things that happens is our heart becomes very, very soft. It becomes very, very tender. It becomes very, very vulnerable. And here's what we need to understand by that. We can't just look at the evil and the suffering in the world and be immune to it. We actually experience it more than we did before because we're more aware of what is going on in the world because our heart is soft. And we experience more of the pain and evil in this world. And here's how I know this, is that 2,000 years ago, there was a man 
that walked this earth, and his name was Jesus. And he had the perfect human heart. He was God, but he had the perfect human heart. And what we see in his life is that he was angry and frustrated at the brokenness and injustice in this world. We see Jesus being angry, especially with religious leaders. We see him turning over the tables in the temple. We see him frustrated at the stubborn hearts of religious leaders that are leading people astray and away from the truth about who God really is. We see him angry and frustrated at the tomb of Lazarus when someone that was close to him dies. Jesus was called in the Bible a man of sorrows. Sorrow and suffering followed his life. But here's what I know is that Jesus did a pretty good job of walking closely with the Father. And it didn't keep him from experiencing pain and suffering in this world. So there's no way that we can look at anything that we know about the Bible and come to any kind of a conclusion that would say, if I follow God, bad things are not going to happen to me, that pain and suffering are somehow going to be distant from me. But that's where Asaph starts with his thesis statement, and it's wrong. And here's what happens if you buy into that, because this is what happened to Asaph. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when he says wicked right there, I think sometimes in our mind we think of just the most evil person that we can think of. But when he's talking about wicked there, he's just talking about people that don't know who God is and they don't follow him. Now maybe there are some really evil people that fall into that category, but it can be just some regular people that don't know and follow God. And he said, when I believed that, He said, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. It was almost this picture of I'd almost lost my grip on my faith because I envied people and their lives that didn't follow God. And here's his evidence. This is what he sees in the world that so frustrates him. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? They actually get to the place where they're mocking God. He's watching people mock God. And he says, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. So he's looking across the landscape of the world and looking at people that don't follow God. And here's what's going on inside of them, inside of him. He's saying, their lives look awesome compared to mine. It seems like they're healthy It seems like they don't have the same kind of problems that I do. It seems like they've got massive amounts of money. Their kids don't need braces. I mean, they've got everything. Life seems better for them, and that just doesn't add up for him. But then Asaph begins this. He starts to look at their life and really contrast it with his own life and the challenges that he's experiencing in life. 
And he starts, as he starts to reflect on his own life and make that contrast, here are some conclusions that he comes to. Starting in verse 13, it says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it deeply troubled me. And it deeply troubled me is just a way for them to say, I was angry. I was frustrated. This ticked me off because it just didn't seem fair. And we see the conclusions that he came to there. One of them is just simply, it's just not worth it. If their lives are better, it's just not worth it. Why would I even waste my time to follow God if not following God means better things in this life? That was one conclusion he came to. But I want to dial in, if I could, a little bit on verse 15 there. And when I first read through this text, I kind of just glossed over verse 15. But I actually think there's a gem right there in this text that we've got to mine out a little bit. Verse 15 that I read earlier said this, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I say spoken out like that, this is what he said when he was saying that surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. He's saying if I would have said that, if I would have said that out loud, God, as a leader of Israel, what I would have done is I would have sent your people in the wrong direction. You know, you know what this tells me about Asaph? Is even as he's praying these things to God, he knows in his heart of hearts that the things that he's saying are not true. He knows that deep down it is worth it to follow God. But all the evidence that he's looking at in this life seems to be to the contrary. And this is why I think it's important that we look at this and we understand that this is included in Scripture. Because you know what this tells me? Because what Asaph said right there is he said, I, I, I don't want to say this out loud because I know that this isn't true and I don't want to lead anyone astray. But, but do you get kind of the irony there? He wants to keep this inside, but it is written in the pages of Scripture so that every Israelite ever is going to read about what it is that was going on in his heart. And you know what this tells me about God? What it tells me about God is he is very okay with us coming to him with our full heart, whatever it is. He doesn't want us to put things under the rug. He wants us to unfold our heart wherever it is, in whatever shape it's in. We don't have to come to him politically correct. We don't even have to come to him theologically correct. We just need to bring our heart to him and talk to him about the things that are going on underneath, the things that are challenging us in our faith. God just simply says, come to me. Bring it on. I can handle it. I am big enough and secure enough being God of the universe. I can handle your unfiltered emotional rant. It's okay. And he invites us into that. He wants us to bring our whole heart to him. And it's at this point that Asaph actually hits the turning point in this psalm. Where everything turns upside down. And that happens in verse 17 when God enters the picture in his life. Verse 17 says this. This is what was, he said, this is what was going on in my mind and I couldn't understand it. And then everything changed when I entered the sanctuary of God. He's simply saying, I went to the place where God dwells. 
I pushed myself into the presence of God. I didn't run away from him. I didn't try to bury the things that were going on in my life. I didn't try to medicate the things that are going on in my life with the stuff of this world. I didn't just try to process it endlessly with people. I didn't just spend week after week after week going to a counselor. He just said, I pushed myself into the presence of God. And it was in the presence of God that Asaph actually began to see the truth. And the truth was that he actually began to grab a hold of God's perspective. God's perspective not only on his life, but on the life of every person on this planet. And this is what he says, continuing in verse 17. He says, then I understood their final destiny. Their meaning people that don't know and don't follow God. He said, I understand their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes, when you arise. Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What he's saying there is, I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it. And this is the problem that Asaph had. Is he, was, he was looking at his life, and he was looking at the lives of others, and it was just like this. He was focused just on this world. What's happening in this world? But what God does when he begins to be in his presence is his vision, instead of being this little tunnel vision, it starts to grow. And he starts to see life in the big picture. He starts to see life in light of eternity. He's not just seeing what's happening on this little planet here. He's thinking about life from eternity past. This idea that God has always been there. If we can imagine all of time going toward eternity past, God has always been there. And then if this line goes all the way through here, and all the way out that door forever, that's eternity. And what he's saying is, I've just got this little, little dot of my life on this planet. It's that small. The thing that he's starting to understand is that life is short and eternity is long. What I need to do is I need to see life in light of eternity. And remember that this world is not my home. This is not my home. In fact, I'm only gonna be here for a little bit of a dot and the rest of my life is gonna be spent with God. He's starting to see the bigger picture. And it's creating clarity for him to understand how to even deal with the things that are happening here and now. And the Apostle Paul also tries to help us understand this when he gives this perspective in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When he talks to us about not having tunnel vision. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. His mind is fixed, not on the things of this earth, but his mind is fixed on eternity. And he says, so we fix our eyes, not on the things that are seen. We don't just fix our eyes, tunnel vision, on the things of this earth, but we fix our eyes on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What happens to Asaph is what needs to happen to us is we need to see our life in light of the bigger picture. 
And, and I want to go back, and I feel like I have to go back to clarify some things that we just read about as well. Because you could think, based on the things that Asaph said about those people's eternity that don't know God, you could imagine that maybe what is going on in him is like, okay, if that's what's true, they're going to get theirs someday. I'm having difficulty now, but they're going to get theirs someday. That is not what's going on in his heart because this is a man of God. And like I said earlier, when we grab the heart of God, when he gives us that heart of flesh, these things actually become more challenging to us. The thought of people spending eternity apart from God, that wasn't a relief to Asaph. It wasn't like, oh yeah, you're gonna get yours then. It was a burden to him. Because when you grab the heart of God, the things that matter to God start to matter to you. And so it wasn't a relief in any way, but it was a burden because what am I gonna do? What am I gonna be about to help people come to know the God that if they die apart from him, they will spend eternity away from him. It, we start to feel God's pain when we have that heart of flesh. And then Asaph goes on, and there's a truth that he grabs in this psalm, that he grabbed it, and friends, every one of us needs to grab this as well. If we're going to have hope in the midst of our suffering, and it's this simple truth, God is with us. It's that simple. God is with us. This is what he said. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And this earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life strength of my heart and my portion forever. God doesn't promise us ever that this life is gonna be free of the pain and suffering and the things that we're gonna be angry about because frankly, God's angry about those things as well. But what he does promise is every step of the way, I'm gonna be with you. And I think that picture that Asaph gives us is important because that picture is one of intimacy it, God's not saying that I'm just gonna be with you conceptually. I'm gonna be with you theologically. I'm gonna be with you ontologically. He says, no, I am gonna be with you relationally. And there's a picture that you need to have. It's like a father holding the hand of a son and he's just saying, grab my hand in the midst of that. Even if, it doesn't, even if you don't feel like it, even if it's the most counterintuitive thing for you to do when life is hard and it seems like God is distant, he says, push your way into the sanctuary. Grab the hand of your God because it's there that we find change. And Asaph concludes with this. He says, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, this is what it means for me, he says, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. God is my refuge. When things are tough, when I'm angry, even if it's counterintuitive, we push our way to him. And friends, if there's only one thing that you grab a hold of tonight, I hope it's that. When you deal with anger in your life, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling distance from God, the one thing that you need to do 
is to move toward him. That's the game changer. That was the game changer for Asaph. It was till I saw him in the sanctuary. When I moved into his presence, then perspective came and God's presence came and then everything changed. Everything changed except what? His circumstances. We never know if anything about his circumstances changed, but everything changed for him because his perspective was different because he understood God's presence. And God invites us. He says, come to me. And here's what's challenging when we come to God with the things that make us angry. When I do that, and my experience has been, I want to go to God and I want to know why. I want reasons for the things that happen. Even if I I could just know the reasons, it would help. My experience is I very rarely, if ever, get reasons. I look at the painful things that have happened in my life and the painful things that have happened to those that I love. I don't know the reasons. I'll probably never know the reasons. But this is what I do. I know what the reason isn't. I know from the Bible what the reason isn't. And the reason isn't that God doesn't understand and that God doesn't care. Because friends, we can't look at the life of Jesus. We can't look at the death of Jesus on the cross and come to any other conclusion than that God understands and he cares about unjust suffering in the world. Jesus experienced the most unfair thing in the world when he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sin. We can't look at Jesus and say, you don't know unjust suffering. We can't come to that conclusion. But not only does he tell us, he actually shows us. What do you do in those places when you're hurt and you're angry and you're suffering? Matthew 26, this is where we see Jesus in the garden. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here a while. Sit here while I'll go over and pray, there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What he's saying is that the suffering and the pain that I'm feeling inside, I feel like it's going to kill me before I even get to the cross for that to kill me. But he says, stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus doesn't tell us how to move toward God. He shows us how to move toward God in our pain and suffering. And that's exactly what he did. And he brought a heart of honesty. And he said, God, if there's any other way that we can do this, I would want that right now. But at the end of the day, Father, it's whatever you want because I'm with you. He prayed honestly from his heart. Friends, every one of us in this room, we're gonna have heart challenges in our life. We just are. And if you haven't had any, just wait five minutes because they're gonna be coming. And God just simply says, bring your heart to me. Don't wait for yourself to get it politically and theologically correct. Just bring your heart to me and let me hold it. Let me hold it so that you can experience my presence. And then he says, grab my hand. 
be with me, grab my hand, grab my presence, grab my perspective, because it's in my presence and perspective that you can also grab a hold of hope. If you just want to put your things aside, I just want to say that I know that I don't know the things that are going on in your life right now that are bringing challenge to you, but I know that the Father does. And I just want to give you a little bit of space right now to just, in your heart, talk to him. Tell him about that. Start the conversation with him. And then I'm going to take just a minute and I'm going to pray over us. Father, as we humbly come before you, we just ask out of your kindness and grace, would you extend your presence to us in the things that are challenging us right now? God, we need to know that you're there. We need to feel you holding us by our right hand. We need you to walk us through the things that are causing pain and suffering and even causing us to direct potential anger toward you, God. We need you. We don't need you to change our circumstances necessarily, God. We know that we just need you. Would you help us to experience you more deeply? God, I just pray for my friends and those things. I pray that you'd give them courage to pursue you, Lord, even when they don't feel like it. God, would you help them when they don't want to pray? Would you help them to pray anyway? Lord, would you help them when they don't want to sing praises to you? Would you help them to sing praises anyway? God, would you help them when they don't want to give thanks to you? God, would you help them to be thankful anyway? God, we desperately need you to move in beside us. Thank you that you're a God that doesn't want to be far off. You want us to experience you. And it's in your son's powerful and gracious name that we pray. Amen.